Hi, and welcome to Recce Perfection. I'm your host, Rochelle Linnae. Today, we have an amazing guest that I feel so fortunate to get to introduce. His name is Dr. Thomas Curran, and he is the assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Sciences at the London School of Economics and Political Science. That is a mouthful. <laughs> His primary area of expertise is the personality characteristic of perfectionism, how it develops, and how it impacts mental health. He's the author of over 30 published papers and book chapters and has received numerous awards for his scholarship and research. I found Thomas through his TED Talk on perfectionism, which I will link to in the show notes because it is incredible. I learned so much from this conversation, things that basically shattered everything I thought about perfectionism up until this point. One thing I love about Thomas is that he's incredibly real and sharing his own experiences with perfectionism. You're going to hear about why social factors are so important when it comes to perfectionism, where this idea of perfection even comes from, and how we're impacted by our capitalist overlords. On that note, let's get to the show. <laughs> Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so you've done a lot of research in the field of perfectionism, and I'm curious how you got started in that field. Uh, well, I mean, the short story is I'm a perfectionist um, and it was something that I really could see in a lot of the people that I hung out with and my peers, uh, but there wasn't a great deal of research at the time. I was doing a, a PhD in psychology and I kind of just out of curiosity really was just kind of interested to know what, what's, what's the literature saying about this, uh, but there wasn't a great deal there. There was a lot of I guess, conceptual pieces and clinical case notes from um, psychotherapists who, who, you know, in just in conversations with perfectionists had reported some of the key symptoms and some of the key consequences of perfectionism. But really in terms of systematic research, it wasn't a great deal. So I, so really that was my kind of in. And from there, I've just been interested to understand the, to the topic more and uh, to understand what it predicts, some of the outcomes that perfectionism leads to, how it develops, and more recently, whether it's increasing over time. So I'm curious about perfectionism as a personality characteristic. How does that develop? Uh, perfectionism is kind of a... Uh, like any personality characteristic, really, um, there's there's two major components, the kind of nature-nurture argument, and a lot of it is genetically acquired, as to say, a lot of it's sort of nature, basically, about half half of perfectionism and any, actually, most personality characteristics, about half of the between-person differences are genetic, so passed down from your parents, uh, so it's kind of a lottery, really, uh, and from birth, you kind of predisposed to certain characteristics, and one of which is perfectionism. Uh, but then the other half is socially acquired um, in the broader environment. So that's the kind of nurture argument. Uh, but what's really interesting here is that most people point the finger at parents. So when they talk about nurture, they think parenting and early life experiences and family unit. But what we what we know about personality development is that very little of the social transmission of any personality trait is, is from parents. Uh, most of it's from broader culture. Um, and what you what you see is that essentially young people take on dominant cultural frames in the wider environment outside of the family unit, how they interact with their friends, how they interact with their school, how they interact with things like social media. And all of these broader forces and factors have a much heavier weight on their personality development than does any parenting. So what we think is occurring, and we need more research, but what we think is happening is that Around about half of perfectionism is genetically acquired, and then the other half is nurture. But when we talk about nurture, what we're really talking about is culture. I'm smiling because <laughs> I started this podcast with the idea that we can teach and raise kids that are not perfectionistic, thinking that a lot of that, um, that... Uh, perfectionism develops at home um, and with that parent-child relationship and so it's really interesting to learn that that is just one small piece of the puzzle 
yeah, I mean, the, 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 it would be really nice for me to say, you know, we would have like, we could have some ready-made uh, tips and hints for parents to, to go away and, and employ. And, they, and, and at some level, they will work, they will help, they can't harm. Um, but unless we start to address the cultural frames that are really binding young people into perfectionistic tendencies, then it's really a, it's a losing battle. Um, and, and, and I mean, I, I, we can talk about this more later in terms of solutions, but really the, the hope for, for, for us to begin to turn the corner on these, on these recent trends is really from the bottom up. You know, the socialist in me wants to, to suggest that we can make loads of top-down changes that uh, can impact on young people's lives. But actually, unless young people themselves start to change the culture from the ground upwards, and that, and that goes throughout all of their interactions with each other, through social media, through school, through college, whatever it might be, uh, then, then this problem will, will continue to um, will continue to get worse. Um, but I, I'm seeing some really positive signs in that direction. I think we've got a long way to go, but I think there are some, there's some positive signs in terms of young people starting to push back against that culture. Mm. And I'm sure it's getting even more difficult as, you know, if we're talking about socialization um, and the effects of um, social media, things like kids younger and younger are getting exposed to these messages um, through the internet and, you know, having social media, you know, we're talking about young kids having Instagram and all these things <laughs> that I'm sure have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Like social, social media is a, is, is, a, is an important piece of the puzzle. And I think that there's a lot of evidence now that's occurring to suggest that uh, social media and, and some of the images and expectations that are kind of broadcast through social media can, can impact on young people's own expectations and self-image and how they feel like they should behave, appear, perform. Um, and and that, that's problematic because obviously uh, there's a conflict there between the idealized self, uh, sense of self, that's to say this, I should look like this, I should appear like this, I should perform like this, and the actual lived reality um, that, that, that isn't perfect, that is uh, a little bit uh, messy, that we do screw up sometimes, that we wake up on the wrong side of bed, that we're not feeling a great 100% of the time every single day and that, and that actually that's kind of normal you know that's just that's just what being human is all about mm. uh, the problem is with social media it doesn't allow us to be human it allow it, it forces us to curate a sort of inhuman uh, manufactured per perception of perfection I guess and that creates a lot of conflict and a lot of difficulty in people in terms of uh, on the one hand, I'm expected to, to live this perfect life, but on the other hand, I'm feeling quite miserable for not quite being able to, to, to reach it. Um, and that's where perfectionism comes in. Because obviously, the only way that we can guarantee that our, ourselves to look and appear perfect all the time is to try to be perfect uh, and to try to strive for perfect goals, perfect image, whatever it might be. And a lot of that is transmitted through social media, and that's why social media can be problematic. So I'm thinking about, I, I feel like we dove right in and I realized that I wanted to start actually with your definition of perfectionism because I love it so much. Could you actually tell us how you define perfectionism? Yeah, so we kind of in the same, same lines of what we've been talking about. I mean, perfectionism, we can talk about perfectionism more broadly uh, as we have done and we can, we can really drilling on on the concept itself and try to figure out what the what the hell this, this personality trait is and what it looks like and what it means where it comes from um and what we know from a number of decades really of clinical observation and research study and talking to people who've got had perfectionistic tendencies what it means to them where it comes from is that perfectionism is is multifaceted so Broadly speaking, we think of perfectionism as a sense of, or a need or a desire, not not a wish or a kind of a, I'd like to be perfect. It's a kind of a need, a requirement on the self to be perfect. So that's, that's I think, a key distinction to remember when we begin the definition of perfectionism. It's not a wish, it's a need, it's a requirement. And that can be uh, manifested in several ways. It can be self-oriented, that's to say that it can come from within, so that I 
want to be perfect. I have high self-set goals and expectations for myself and I'm highly self-critical and I don't need them. But we also found in this kind of fact-finding exercise and uh, uh, discovery exercise, talking to people who have perfectionism, is that it isn't just the, those self-set goals and standards, um, but actually there's a social element of perfectionism too, uh, an element of perfectionism that comes from outside, that comes from the social environment, and that, that's the sense that everyone expects me to be perfect, um, and they're critical and judgmental when I haven't, um, and that's called socially prescribed perfectionism, and that's uh, particularly problematic and we can talk about that in a moment and then the third element of perfection is other oriented so that's the uh, outward expression of perfection onto other people so i expect you to be perfect uh, and when you're not i'm judgmental and uncritical and together those three facets dimensions pillars of perfectionism make up what we understand as a broad perfectionism trait um but I think it's really important when you think about perfectionism to remember that it that perfectionism is less really about the goals. Um, it's more about a need and the requirement and the meaning of those goals and what it means and it says about the self. So we have high expectations, high goals and high standards, but really where all of that energy comes from is a need to rectify or repair what we perceive to be a defective self. So all of this energy and all of these perceptions and need for validation and approval and high standards come from at root a sense that I'm defective, uh, that I'm in some way flawed. And so therefore I need to be perfect in order to repair some, some of the uh, damage that, or some of the flaws that I feel um, I have. So, so when we talk about perfectionism, that's what we mean. Okay. So it's, it's interesting because I'm thinking about this need to it seems not only perfect the self, but be seen as perfect by others. So maybe this this fear of, and I definitely identify as a perfectionist as well, like this fear of not being seen um, or being seen as flawed, being seen as less than. Um, and it's quite a pervasive, you know, fear. Um, but it, it also reminds me because I felt at times like it's very um, self-centered because you're so focused on like what others will think of you. Uh, and it almost reminds me a little bit of narcissism in terms of trying to constantly get approval and praise from people uh, because it's mm -hmm. never enough like internally and it comes from a sense of low self-worth. But and now I'm curious, are th is there any like relation between perfectionism and narcissism? Well, hey, okay, okay, so here's the thing, like uh, a lot of young people have been maligned uh, in the popular press because what is perfectionism looks like something else. It looks like narcissism or it looks like self-centeredness or it looks like selfishness. But what it really is, is a deep insecurity. It's not narcissism at all. It's not a, some grandiose expression of, look at me, look how good I am. It's not some uh, a need for some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, high status or appeal. What, what we're really seeing in these behaviors is a, a deep and, and, and um, really, I guess, uh, powerful insecurity insecurity about how we're looking to other people insecurity about how we're appearing or coming across a chronic need for others to validate us to, to, to tell us that, that, that actually we're not flawed um that we're worth something in this world that we matter and and so perfectionism really is is, is something that has certain behavioral characteristics that you might associate with things like narcissism but it comes from a completely different place and that I think we can we actually give young people a bad name because we're misdiagnosing something that's that needs a love and, and attention and, and just a big hug, you know. Like if you're a perfectionist, you just give you know they just need love and and, and, and just a massive hug, you know, because it's it's that insecurity that's feeding those behaviors. It isn't as it isn't recrimination, it isn't you're such a narcissist or you're so self-centered or whatever it is, it's actually just a cry for help. And uh, and so whilst there are overlaps with these these traits, uh, we have to be very careful about how why in, in what ways they're different. 
and how they come from different places. Mm. Uh, and, and perfectionism is really one that, that, uh, that, that I think is a dominant characteristic of young people today. And uh, it comes from a very different place to what many people think it does. Um, having said all that, oriented perfectionism has some uh, overlap with narcissism and uh, some research studies show that um, oriented perfectionism, so not the other two, but that outward expression of perfection onto others can overlap with some narcissistic tendencies like grandiosity or entitlement. Um, but but uh, but yeah, beyond that, the the two I think should be distinguished because I think that's uh, the distinguishment of them is really important. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I think the reason I thought of it is because yeah, that place of needing approval from everyone, it yeah, it feels like you're on a stage and you're just always performing. And uh, I was just writing a song about this recently. Um, and literally, I have been on the stage a lot performing <laughs> as a musician, yeah. but um, I always felt like, you know, I had to be perfect. And um, and it almost feels like with social media, like we're on, like we are on this constant stage and it's like um, our followers are like our audience and we're waiting for all their likes and yeah. and it all feels so false because no matter how many likes you get whether it's like 13 or 3000 you know it's like well there's there's always more there's always more you could get and yeah. because you're coming from that place of internal lack um you know you don't feel like you're good enough then no amount of other people approving you is going to really help because it just kind of rolls right off and you again like raise the standard and yeah. so i'm curious like if what we really need is that big hug like you said <laughs> that's so sweet um how like how as a perfectionist can you get that feeling like the real sense of approval for yourself rather than that external source that that feels kind of fake yeah i mean just to say you're absolutely right i mean the one of the reasons why perfectionism is so problematic is because there's no lasting sense of achievement from any accomplishment uh because the better that we do the better we feel we're expected to do that we kind of raise in the bar on ourselves it's like a never-ending treadmill or a, or a cycle you know that kind of starts to entrench itself and become almost an everyday battle uh, that's why it's so exhausting and that's why it's so problematic. Um, but there are ways that we we can escape. And we can we can try to sort of step uh, take a step off, and it's not easy. I can tell you from personal experience that it's really not easy. But but one one of the things that I found really really helpful, and as I've got older, this has become easier. Um, and it's a luxury that I guess I have that people who are a little bit older, a little bit more secure, have. Um, but nevertheless, just stop giving a fuck. You know, like it's really, really important to, uh, to, 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 to distance yourself from other people's opinions and their validation and to just be content with uh, the art or the craft that you're invested in and the hobby that you're invested in and the passion that, that makes you, you know, get out of bed in the morning. That sort of sense of purpose and confidence is really, really, really crucial and divorcing how you feel about it from what other people feel about it. And whether that be just through playing, on, playing, writing music, playing the guitar, uh, and, and not really caring about the uh, the output, that's to say sort of the, the pristine notes or the, the clean strikes or whatever it might be, um, but but focusing more on the, on the emotion, you know, on the feeling and the, and the kind of meaning of that music and that art to you. Uh, because some of the most powerful art is is not perfect. In fact, if anything, it's that it's the imperfection. It is the slips on the chords, or it's the, the kind of misfingering on the uh, uh, on the on the guitar, or it's the kind of uh, it's the little kind of croak in the voice that just provides that color, that that kind of um, I guess uh, character to to something that makes it individual and unique and makes it uh, all the more engaging because there's something and i think this is really important for us all to learn but there's something there's something quite sterilizing 
about trying to make things perfect by trying to make things pristine, clean edges, and uh, you know, and shiny output. We kind of lose the essence of what it is that we're trying to create, and and we're we're kind of striving for that kind of most dubious, I guess, of qualities of invulnerability. Um, we're all vulnerable, and we're all imperfect. And so I think just engaging with the process of the the activity or art or work that we're involved in and distancing ourselves from the output can create some of the best uh rem one of the best remedies i suppose for a perfectionistic mindset but it's not easy and like we talked about before you know culture pushes us in completely opposite direction it says no i want it like filtered i want it pristine i want the output to be perfect and the, the voice to be auto-tuned and all this all this nonsense right that's what that's how culture tells us to to produce um but i, I would say we should, we should try where we can to push back against that yeah well because in the age of photoshop and auto-tune these digitalizing um kind of trying to yeah digitally uh remove all flaws then what we're really doing is removing our humanity because mm. to me humanity inevitably is imperfect there is no perfect person or tree or plant or anything of life that exists and for me it brings to question where did we even get the idea of perfection do you know much about that because i don't really believe that it exists <laughs> it's, it's it's culture it's i mean it's been going on now since the since it's since the 50s and 40s 50s after the war there was a kind of this great heralding of a new era after the war and you can go all the way back maybe further and, and, and you know to the to the industrial revolution but but the, but if we start from after the war i guess we can get a pretty good idea of what's happened um and consumerism started to take off. You see, the, the thing is, the US this is have uh, always been slightly ahead of the game than Europe because they weren't sort of ravaged by uh, the bombs and, and the destruction of war. So they kind of had a bit of a head start. Um, and, and to this day, they're still ahead in many areas, um, politically, culturally, economically. And one of the things that was really interesting that we started to see after the war is kind of opportunity for all. There was a Roosevelt, the Roosevelt um, uh, New Deal and uh and and this idea that you kind of we're going to break up the natural aristocracies we're going to create opportunities for everybody and this was a great uh, new dawn a new era new free enterprise open markets uh you know people can have what they want be what they want um do whatever they want uh, provided that they work hard enough and, and, and you know pursue the american dream i guess and so this whole new era of guess social ascendancy started to take off and you start to see the middle classes become richer and you start to see people have more things and more money that they meant they could buy uh, houses cars material goods etc etc this is the birth and growth of consumerism that started to take uh, take hold in the 50s and for a while this was awesome I right? guess this was lifting up people it was bringing them into a way of life that they'd never really known before and it's fantastic um but the only way it was really sustained was actually through government redistribution. The, the tax rates on the very highest earners were very, very high back then, uh, and that 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 wealth was redistributed so that people had a had a fair chance to do well. What happened in the sixties and seventies? We started to move away from that model into more sort of less government intervention and more big business, free markets. Um, which created what we started to what we have today, which is massive levels of inequality, whilst at the same time holding on to those ideals of the American dream. So what we're beginning to teach people is that you need to strive, you need to work hard, don't be average, don't be ordinary. Okay, you've got to be extraordinary, um, because that way you'll show your merit to the world, you show your worth, and and you'll be remunerated. Uh, generously, whilst at the same time cutting off any opportunity now for, for people in the middle classes to ascend into the top 10, never mind the 1%, to ascend into the top 10%, the, the gate is shut, slammed shut through, you know, schools and uh, elite colleges and selective uh, placements and all sorts of 
various instruments and tools with a 10% kind of just safe, taken their wealth and safeguarded it. So now not only do we have an issue about people needing to be extraordinary to even survive, but we're also shaming people for not being able to ascend the social ladder. Uh, and we're telling them that their lot, so their kind of social position lower down the ladder is their fault because you're not good enough, because you haven't got the skills, the abilities um, and all the rest of it. And then you throw social media into that culture uh, that's kind of emphasizing the per perfect life, the perfect lifestyle. You have a really, really, uh, I guess, dangerous cultural ideal that you have to be exceptional, extraordinary, you can't just be ordinary or average. And on top of that, you've got this kind of arms race where everybody's fighting against each other to look the best, to come across as the strongest, to uh, have the, you know, the best car, the best life, the, the, the flashiest hotel, uh, holidays, whatever it might be, whatever, what we're seeing is people engaging in this sort of race to demonstrate their merit and to prove to others that they're worth something. Um, and that they should, you know, and that therefore they wouldn't be shamed for not being perfect and not being excellent, not being extraordinary. So I think like we, we have, a, there's a massive historical context to all this. And I'm currently writing up it as a, in my book. Um, I, I, and it's culminated into, into where we are today, where perfection is kind of the highest and uh, most uh, socially desirable ideal. It's our favorite floor. We show it off to everybody. We want everybody to know that we're a perfectionist because if, we, if we're not perfect and we're not extraordinary, then this culture is going to be really uh, judgmental. Uh, and, it, and it's really going to come down on us hard. So we have to. There's no choice. We have to be perfect. We have to show ourselves to be perfect. That's just kind of the cultural ideal. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a long-winded answer. But that, that's kind of how we've arrived at where we are today. Um, and that's why it's, what's why it's becoming so much of a... Uh, a widespread problem well and also our ideal is very white centric and mm. i mean every there's obviously a whole bunch of other history in there that's yeah the american dream is really it's sure. yeah for white people off the backs of people of color black indigenous mm -hmm. so that's the other you know obviously big piece of it but I do appreciate going into the history of it. Yeah, society holds down people at the bottom. And, and we don't talk about, so in the US in particular, we don't talk about class enough, but class is most acutely divided along racial lines. And what you see is a kind of intersectionalities of, um, of uh, privilege. So essentially, if you're working class and you happen to be a person, um, an ethnic minority, then it's going to be really hard for you because not only do you have the class disadvantage, you also have the ethnic disadvantage too. And particularly in this culture, that's that that really that really pins you down. And um, and 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 on top of that, you've got all the shame that comes from being in that position in the first place, even though it's not your fault. There's nothing you can do because that is it's systemic. That inequity is systemic. Um, so it's a really tough culture, particularly if you are at the bottom. And and, um, and I think it's no wonder we're starting to see these issues. And when we think about, you know, believing the lie that we live in a meritocracy and that we can all, you know, rise above. And like you kept saying the word extraordinary. It's like we can all be extraordinary. But if 100% of people are extraordinary, then nobody is extraordinary. Even more than 50% of people can't be. I heard some statistic that was like 70% of people think that they're above average. <laughs> it's, do you know what? That's so interesting. I need to get that statistic of you because uh, one of the things that I'm writing about at the moment, actually, I teach statistics. One of the things I talk about is normal distribution. And if anyone's familiar with like elementary uh, mathematics, you'll know that normal distribution conforms to something called a bell-shaped curve. So you have a peak in the middle at the average where most people are. And then, of course, as you go to the extremes, it tails off. And one of the things that's really interesting about, about because this is a fundamental law of numbers, large numbers, you get enough people, you throw enough people into a distribution, you get a normal curve. Um, and what's really interesting is 
that we we apply so much stigma to the peak where most if we had no other information and the next person comes into a room and I had to guess their wage and I had no other information available to me, I would have to go with the mean because that's the most likely wage to be true in a distribution. Okay, so, so applying so much stigma to the most likely number is just absurd. Like it doesn't make any sense, but we do it all the time. To say that you're average is kind of the worst thing you can call someone. To say that you're ordinary is the worst thing you could call someone because there's so much pressure. And all we're doing, by the way, because it's so hard for us to ascend the social ladder these days, the way that inequalities are, are sort of baked into the system, is that in the middle classes and the working classes, what we're doing is we're kind of moving the center, moving the peak to the right, further to the right, further to the right. That's all we're doing. We're not, uh, we're not moving ourselves up the, up the distribution. We're just moving what's expected as average higher, um, and that's and that's creating this this issue of where we are today, where the expectation of just average, what's just seen as average, uh, is much higher, and it's a much higher peak to climb uh, than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so it's a it's when I talk about patient being a cultural phenomenon, these are the sorts of things that we're talking about. And I think that the thing. The thing that is kind of unspoken that to me is so key is the idea that better means more money, more stuff, uh, maybe more beautiful, like according to this one certain beauty standard that's, you know, white Eurocentric. And I think that when you, when you talked about divorcing yourself from what other people, you know, think it's, it's kind of honing in on who are you and what do you value? Because what this culture teaches us, you know, consumerism is feeding off the fact, capitalism is feeding off the fact that we're so insecure and we think we need more money, more stuff, more wealth, um, you know, buying every beauty product imaginable. Um, and that's, you know, feeding off of our insecurities is how, is how capitalism thrives. And it's like if each person were to stand up and say, I'm extremely happy with my wages, you know, I, I have enough to live on. I'm extremely happy with the way I look. I'm extremely happy with my life. That's, to me, that's like rebelling. That's like revolutionary. Mm. And I think that's partly why we have so much, you know, we have so many books on happiness and gratitude and we're, you know, trying, we're so like obsessed with like, how can I be happy? It's like, you need to stop feeding into the lie that capitalism is selling you to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll go one step further and say that actually it doesn't just feed off it, it creates it. Um, and it actually the business model I mean, the thing is, here's the thing. So, we live in a we live in a what's what's called a supply side economics. That's to say that there needs to be a constant supply of new goods, new innovations, new products, um, and that there has to be a demand for those new products to to, uh, to kind of uh, keep the keep the ball rolling. You know, so we need to keep consuming. Uh, so that we we drive prosperity and growth, new new industries, new businesses, new products, and all the rest of it. And, and the theory goes that if we can drive that, uh, you know, this is the most efficient way to organise. If we can if we can drive more innovation, more goods, more products, more services, a rising tide lifts all boats, and all that nonsense. That that but that's the model that a lot of people believe in. They believe that to be the case, and that's how economies are most efficiently run. The problem is with that, of course, is it requires a, cons a certain type of consumer. It requires a discontented consumer. It requires a consumer that is constantly worried about how they appear and how they come across and what they have and what they own because there's a some level, a sense that they are incomplete without a certain beauty product, without a car, without a certain household appliance, without some piece of furniture. And so constantly we're sold these products as a way of rectifying something that's flawed about you. That's that, that you you are incomplete without this product. And if you just had this particularly 
uh, amazing brand of toothpaste, then you'll you'll never be single again. Or if if you you know if you you know what I mean like if you if you if you go to this particularly helpful hotel chain, then you'll never lose sleep again when you're on your business travels or whatever it might be. Can you see that there's these products are, made, are completing something that isn't complete. They're making us feel, or they're making us, uh, they're, they're, they're rectifying some flaw that they have. And in order for us to feel like we have that flaw, they have to kind of seed it. They kind of have to, and this, you know, there's a whole literature on this, particularly uh, aimed at females uh, back in the 50s, 60s, around shaming and shaming people into, and particularly women into buying beauty products and all the rest of it, which um, when you look back, it's crazy, but it still goes on today. It's just a little bit more coded, but it still goes on today. So the whole thing is set up to make us feel miserable. It's it's all uh, calibrated to make us feel miserable because then we'll consume. If we didn't consume, the whole economy falls down. It, it, it can't work. This this setup doesn't work if people aren't consuming. So uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's it, it, this is one of the biggest this is one of the biggest problems that we need to overcome. And it's why I talk about bottom up approach. Um, we could try and top down this all we want, but I don't think it will work until people actively start rejecting the sense that, you know, I need this to be happy and, and I'm, and I'm just content, you know, to be who I am. Yeah. And even the idea of perfect, what does that mean to you personally? Because if it relies on comparing yourself to others and, you know, having as much as or more than people around you then yeah you're going to continue to have that sense of not enough um but the interesting thing you know when you talk about it as perfectionism as a personality trait and um you also mentioned like in your ted talk that we're seeing levels rise in perfectionism mm -hmm. that's right then I mean, is is it actually like genetically now we're becoming more predisposed to this? Like, do you think that's happening as like an evolutionary trait because of our culture? Uh, it's 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 kind of like a it, basically what starts to happen is you reach an inflection point. So you have this kind of brooding sort of uh, sort of a bubbling uh, problem that you know you begin to start to see in the eighties, what the data suggests, and it kind of plateaus a little bit. Uh, throughout the 90s and then it starts to accelerate again after around 2008 which is an interesting year in itself but the, but the levels of perfection start to really really drive hard after after about 2008 so so what we think this 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 suggests to us is that that social component of perfectionism because nothing really changes on the genetics not in that short space of time anyway that social element of perfectionism is 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 really in charge right now and actually what we're starting to see is those cultural frames of perfect and perfect life and expectation of perfection are starting to really, really um, dominate, I guess, young people's psyche. And and that might be social media, that, that could be broader cultural factors, that could be educational expectations or college competition, could be all of those things wrapped, in, wrapped up in one big sort of pressure cooker. Um, whatever it might be, we think the data is telling us something about society and it's telling us that expectations are on the rise, the pressures are on the rise, and the young people are kind of finding it really difficult to cope with those unprecedented new pressures that uh, the other generations might not necessarily have to have, have to face. So you had mentioned that uh, perfectionism has some correlations with some pretty negative mental health outcomes. I was wondering if you could talk about some of those outcomes. So perfectionism predicts uh, a whole litany of things, really. The one of the the reason why perfectionism is particularly damaging is because shame is a is is a sort of signature emotion of the perfectionist. So there's a lot of shame that comes along with perfectionism. The reason for that. So just to clarify, shame is, is a self-conscious emotion. We call it a self-conscious emotion. It's a sense that I've done something bad or I've done, I haven't performed or I've made a mistake or whatever. Uh, and that's that's an inflection on myself. Uh, I'm flawed, I'm defective, and, and I'm worthless. And so shame is a real kind of self-castigation emotion, self-conscious emotion that really gets rooted in the self. And so perfectionists get a lot of shame, particularly when things haven't gone well. 
and and they haven't felt like they've lived up to a certain expectation or standard or they've made a mistake or whatever it might be and so there's a lot of shame there's some guilt but there's a lot of shame uh and that sh- that shame turns into over time you know if you string if you string uh, a, a sort of life lived with shame in the background and you string that you string that across days and weeks and months you you, you get to a point where perfectionists feel a lot of helplessness they feel a lot of anxiety feel a lot of depression um and, and at the worst extremes you see a bit, you see things like suicide ideation start to creep into to those who are on the clinical end of perfectionism so it's really a, a problematic trait in terms of mental health um and and so this is one of the reasons why we think these these trends that we've observed need to be uh taken seriously uh, and and that to the policy level anyway that, that action needs to be taken is to just to try to understand why it's occurring and how we can how we can uh, how we can sort of just begin to move in a slightly different direction um, because yeah perfectionism predicts a lot of negative psychological health outcomes and one of the reasons is because of because of shame. So when you mentioned the clinical end of perfectionism. Are we getting to a point where, or maybe we're there now and I have no idea, but are we getting to the point where perfectionism can actually be like prescribed as like a mental health issue? Uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, uh, it's kind of treated as a bit of a surface trait that, that lives underneath uh, higher order traits like neuroticism. Uh, but it's, but it's nevertheless a, it, it, there's, there's a case currently being made to try to get it recognized in the DCM, which is kind of the Bible of, uh, psychological disorders. Um, but at the moment it's not recognized in and of itself as a risk factor. Um, but that's not to say that we don't know that there's many, many studies now that have been published. Uh, some, some have been published by my lab. Others have been published by other people's labs. A lot of the people that have done the heavy lifting in this area is uh, Paul Hewitt and Gordon Flett. There's a lot of really interesting research that they've conducted on, on this area and essentially showing now consistently strong, positive relationships between all three dimensions of perfectionism, but particularly socially described perfectionism and anxiety, depression, uh, body image concerns uh, and other sort of mental health problems. Um, so... So yeah, there's a lot of now accruing evidence that shows this is something that's problematic, and and you add it in the clinical case notes and the clinical observations, um, and you get a fairly good picture that the perfectionism is, is pretty bleak. Do you personally think that perfectionism um, should become diagnosable? Well, I'm not a clinician, so I, I have to be a little bit careful. Um, I am. I'm of the opinion that the evidence is there to suggest that it certainly is a risk factor and something that, that, that perhaps should be considered when screening. But at the same time, uh, it's a bit above my pay grade in terms of uh, what, 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 should, what would be recommended as, as, as whether uh, it is or isn't a diagnosable uh, risk factor for uh, clinical uh, help. Um, so I would leave that one to the professionals, but just to say that, that there is a, there is a growing now, uh, chorus of, uh, cl- clinical opinion that suggests that we need to be taking this personality trait seriously as a, as a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I am really interested in that. Um, and I mean, I guess we can't predict exactly what will happen, but it will be interesting to see, um, but in terms of of just dealing with this, um, you know, on a personal level, or maybe somebody. Well, actually, I'm curious to start. Have you seen this in like what age is the youngest you've seen perfectionism, and how can people start to recognize it in young people? Well, I mean, uh, it can start. It can start quite young, and you can see certain tendencies around excessive goals so high goals are fine and being conscientious is good and perseverance and all the rest of it is they're all great things uh but it's it's those kind of excessive standards those irrational standards that are, that are kind of early warning signs where you know even excellent performance is not seen as good enough um those are kind of uh, i would say 
early warning signs. Um, again, it's, it depends on the person, but you might also see some social elements start to creep in as well, a sort of need for approval and validation that, that are also um, things to watch out for. Uh, and it can start young. We, you know, we've got measures and assessment tools that are, are, are calibrated for children um, and that are able to distinguish between young people in terms of their levels of perfectionism. And so, you know, from from around seven, eight, nine, you start, you can begin to start to see differences between young people in uh, in levels of perfectionism. And um, a lot of the research suggests that not only can you distinguish, but you can also explain certain behaviors and certain patterns of emotion or um or mood uh, based on on those scores on perfectionism so it, it's something that, you, that that can start young and particularly if there's a genetic predisposition so what do you think that we can do to help um when we when we're seeing perfectionism in our young people or maybe we're seeing it in ourselves um are there some sort of concrete yeah things that we can do to kind of break that dangerous shame cycle yeah so like like i said i think uh, the first thing is the big picture thing is to try to remove uh, a, a sense of a, rec- a need for people's validation there's no there's no problem with wanting uh to have frank and honest discussions about people about about your performance or um, particularly in the workplace or at college or whatever, um, and about, you know, an item of clothing that you might want to wear or, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a, a particular style of makeup or whatever it might be. There's absolutely no harm in getting other people's opinions. There's no harm in talking to your friends. What's what Where it becomes difficult is if you pin that approval on your own self-esteem, so that you're kind of dependent on what they say for how you feel about yourself. Um, and that's where it becomes problematic. And so separating yourself and your self-esteem from that feedback, approval, and other people's opinions is really, really important. Uh, there's a good book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which I think is a really great book on this particular topic. Um, and it's helped me a lot. Uh, interestingly, not written by a psychologist, but it was really, really good. Um, the other thing I would say is to try to find uh, happiness and contentment in the process rather than outcome. That is to say, focus more on the learning and growth when you're involved in activities. Uh, you know, we'll stay with the music theme if you're learning an instrument or whatever it might be. Don't worry about being able to, you know, play uh songs straight from day one and get frustrated because you can't it's impossible that's not how the learning process works focus more on the progression the growth the enjoyment and the purpose that you get from doing that activity and then the outcome will naturally follow but let the outcomes naturally flow don't force them don't put pressure on them don't you know preoccupy yourself with them focus more on the growth development of anything you do and that goes across work that goes across college school leisure hobbies whatever it might be always always that engage yourself in the growth and development and try where possible it's not always possible but try as much as you can to uh, not not get sidetracked by the outcomes and then i then i guess thirdly i think it's really important in this culture is self-compassion and uh and trying to just be kind to yourself. Uh, when, I, when I say give a perfectionist a hug, I mean that literally, as in if you know a perfectionist, give them a bloody hug. Um, but also I mean that for yourself, uh, just when things haven't gone well and when you've screwed up, I mean, we've all done it and I do it a lot. If I give a lecture and it's been shit or whatever, I've made a mistake, or I've said something that I wasn't quite right. I'm I'm out of the door of the theatre and I'm just kind of like, how did how did you do that? Like, how can you be so stupid? I was ridiculous. Like, why did you say that? Because it doesn't matter in the long term. But you, in that moment, there's a kind of self castigation that starts to creep in. It's really damaging. Like, I can't emphasise how damaging that is on a day to day basis to be constantly your own worst critic. Um, and so once you start to 
feel and recognize those intrusive thoughts beginning to creep into your day-to-day life, stop them. And treat yourself like you would treat a friend. So if a friend screwed up and they came to you really distressed, like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. What would you do? You wouldn't go, no, I can't believe you did that. How, how stupid. Like, what the hell are you thinking? You would, you would empathize with them. You would talk them through the bigger picture. You would try to be kind and, and, and help. Uh, but we don't apply those rules to ourselves. And I think that we should. Uh, so when those intrusive thoughts start to come in, just be kind on ourselves. Just give ourselves a break. Don't feel guilty for going easy on ourselves and giving ourselves a break. Don't be hard on ourselves just for the sake of being hard on ourselves. And, um, and yeah, just be kind to yourself. And that, that's also, we know there's a lot of research that suggests that just being kind to yourself and others can make you, make, improve your well-being tenfold. You know, it's such a powerful, altruism is such a powerful uh, part of well-being, but in particular to yourself. Um, so those, those are the sorts of things that I try and apply that we know that there's research to suggest that they work. And I try to apply in my, in my own life and, and and, and, you know, I, those are the things that I normally recommend when people ask me what are the sorts of things you can do. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think sometimes when we think being kind to others, we forget that, like, we're a person too. Like, if we're going to be kind to all people, like, we're in that group of all people. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but That's right. sometimes we just exclude, like, well, not me, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you cannot screw up like that it's fine for them uh, but that don't don't for god's sake do that yeah, I know you, I know. and then we're not actually offering the grace to others that we think we're offering yeah yeah, yeah. I, again that's that's uh, that's so important just be you know uh kind uh to yourself and others I, it's really simple but it's amazing how we don't do it particularly to ourselves but also you know Sometimes we are unkind to others, unconsciously, unconsciously. And I think just sometimes it's just, it, especially now, now, now as, as I get older, it's become much more evident to me that, that, like I say, not caring as much about what other people think and just being where possible, um, um, empathetic and kind to others is, uh, is, is key. Yeah. So if people want to um find you and also learn more about this research i know i personally i'm like i'm gonna i want to go read all this research um where where can we find you and where can we find the research on perfectionism i so there's a couple of resources uh, that people are interested um they, they should they should go and check out um uh, i would say first of all the the subtle art of not giving a fuck is a great book um and i really recommend that to everyone I would also recommend going back half a, half a century and reading some of Karen Horney's work, who um, was writing in the US around sort of 1940s, 1950s. Um, she writes about the neurotic personality of our time, and it's fascinating. Like it's so it's a lot. You know, a lot of book recommendations that people get is you know whatever's out at the moment. Um, and some of the books out at the moment are really good, like the one I just mentioned. But actually, sometimes you can really learn a lot from the master clinicians that were practicing around around the top. You know, the, the when all of this culture started to take off, and 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 Karen Horn is one. She talks about like the conflict between the authentic self and the idealized self, and how that she calls it an inner conflict, um, and how that that sort of creates a lot of tension and a lot of need to be perfect. And, and uh, as a consequence, a lot of perfectionistic tendencies. And, and I mean, it was relevant then. I think that sort of message is so, so important today, if not more so than it was back then. So that writing is really, really, really useful. And, uh, and she's a clinician, so she talks about it in much better detail than I could and much, much more insightful uh, detail than I could. Um, so I think Karen Horney's work is really good. And then if you want to check out the TED Talk, please, please feel free. It's, uh, it's on TED. If you just type in obsession with perfection, um, you can get these 15 minutes um, ramblings from me. Uh, and, and yeah, like um, 
think I think that's enough to be going on uh, to be going on with. But yeah, there's there's plenty out there, um, and and luckily it's a it's a really burgeoning field. So there's a lot a lot of people are talking about it, and it's really encouraging. So amazing. Well, I will link to all of that in the show notes so that people can find it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for being here today and for generously offering your time and your wealth of knowledge on the the subject and everyone should definitely go check out the ted talk because it is really amazing great well thanks Rochelle. are you gonna put one of your songs in like the outro (laughs) i might i might i have a song called human that that might fit there you go put it in and and you can can sort of just dub it in at the end and it can quietly come on as as you finish that'd be good (laughs) yeah awesome well you have an awesome rest of your evening and yeah thank you again will do all right take care i wrote another song today at least i tried to anyway i got stuck on verses none of the words would come right feels like i've got nothing to say I made a fool of myself today Feels like I always say the wrong thing Think they were being nice When they said it was alright But it felt so patronizing Say it like a friend You can make another mess You can only do your best that's good enough why am i so bad talking to myself like that i'm just a little kid who's scared to live without love what will they think why do i care what will they say what does it matter so much to me i'm trying to be mean like you some days it's hard to do what if they see Maybe they should. What if they leave when I can't keep it on intact? The perfect end. I just want to believe I'm allowed to be human. I fake the confidence it takes to make my way onto the silent stares and all I feel is scared I wish that I were any other place still I think I could run and hide but then I tried that didn't I you can't run from yourself and you can't be someone else no matter where you are it's in your mind
Just wanna believe I'm allowed to be here. 